Our scripture reading this morning is uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. If you are using a church Bible, it's on page 958. That's page 958, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. It is just one verse today, and it is a foundational verse for this series that we're about to begin with Pastor Mark. And the reality is it's a, it's a bedrock verse for every Christian in this room. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. May he bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Well, as Eric mentioned, we are kicking off a new summer series this morning. It'll take us seven weeks And it's called Extraordinary, you saw the trailer, Daily Life for the Glory of God. And so what we're going to try to do is take seven practical topics, something that we encounter on a daily basis for most of us in this room, and we're going to try to unpack it from Scripture, give a biblical perspective to things like food this morning, and marriage, and family, and leisure, and money, and work, and sleep, and things like that. So... I wonder if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you have probably felt the tension between heaven and earth. What I mean by that is you have felt the tension between what you should do because you're a Christian and what you want to do because you're a human being. Have you ever felt the tension between Colossians chapter 3 verse 2, which says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, And 1 Timothy 4, 5, which says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's it's received with thanksgiving. So are we to set our minds on things above, or we set our minds on things on earth? Have you ever felt the tension between Philippians 3, 8? I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And 1 Timothy 6, 17... God has created all things for us richly to enjoy. Have you ever felt the tension of these two hymns? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And another equally great hymn, This is my Father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass I hear him pass, he speaks to me everywhere. So which is it? In the light of his face, do the things of earth grow strangely dim, or does he shine in all that's fair? And what makes the tension even harder for us to navigate is is that we, as Christians, typically aren't very good with nuance. If you haven't figured that out yet, we tend to be a pretty black and white people without a lot of gray. Unfortunately, the Bible gives us a lot of gray and a lot of tension to wrestle with. Now, there are certainly things in the Bible that are yes and no, But there's a lot more in the Bible that's, well, maybe, depending. Certainly there are plenty of areas where a clear yes or no is laid out in Scripture. But there are also many areas where it's not that black and white. The Bible neither endorses nor forbids all sorts of things it could have been a lot clearer about. Don't you ever wish that? God, I wish you would have said more. Well, he didn't. But scriptural silence, brothers and sisters, about the peculiarities of our engagement with the stuff of everyday life is not a reason to just throw up our hands in the air and indulge in an anything-goes-free-for-all, is it? We don't interact with the stuff of creation, with the stuff of everyday life, as though the world was either one big vice factory or one big funhouse of bundle of goodness. We can't simply separate completely from the stuff of everyday life. Being a Christian is not an obstacle to being human. But neither must the stuff of everyday life so dominate us that the natural becomes more important than the supernatural or pleasure in creation becomes greater than the passion for redemption. Trevin Wax helpfully summarizes this tension this way. He says, quote, Faithful Christian living involves a paradox. Our faith is both world-affirming and world-denying. World-affirming in the sense that we believe the world's structures are fundamentally good, a part of God's good creation now longing to be restored. World-denying that we believe the world's systems are pervasively evil, firmly opposed to God and His loving rule and awaiting His judgment. 
miss the goodness of creation structurally, and you start to think the physical creation is bad. So God must be going to do away with it all in the end. Miss the badness of the world systemically, and you start to think sin is not so serious as we've made it out to be. The Christian's mission either becomes getting people into heaven or making the world a better place. End quote. So what are we supposed to do with the things of earth? Embrace them? Reject them? Use them? Forget about them? Set our affections on them? Look at them with suspicion? Or enjoy them with just a pinch of guilt? We've called this series Extraordinary Daily Life for the Glory of God. And that's intentional. Because when we live daily life to the glory of God, the ordinary becomes extraordinary. It's not just ordinary anymore. It's not just mundane. It's life lived to the glory of God, which is the very reason we were made. The truth of eternity and living for the glory of God does not obliterate our earthly experience. Rather, it infuses It should infuse those earthly experiences with heavenly significance. The point of this sermon series is that we don't want you to lose sight of the world-affirming aspects of our Christian faith. We don't want you to be so spiritually minded that you're no earthly good. We don't want you to underestimate the power of living an ordinary life of faithful devotion to King Jesus. We don't want you to feel a false guilt for enjoying the good world that God has given us. Our desire for you in this series is that you would understand how to live ordinary life to the glory of God. That you would learn how to enjoy food, especially bacon, (laughs) marriage, family, work, sleep, money, leisure, in such a way that God will be honored. So why this series then? Why this series? Well... If I haven't made it clear, the ultimate goal of our lives is to glorify God. That's what the verse Eric read illustrates. We're to do everything, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, all to the glory of God. That is, to show His greatness in all that we do, to display Him. God receives glory or not depending on how we interact with His creation. And therefore, it's incumbent upon us as His people to engage His creation so discerningly, maturely, thoughtfully, intentionally, carefully, and passionately, so as to get the most out of it, so that others are compelled to ask, why do you care about this so much? It's just food. Because God matters so much. That's why we care about it so much. Why do you care about it so much? It's just marriage and family. Because God matters so much. And He's tied His image to it. Why do you care so much about sleep and leisure? Because God cares about it and God matters. And he aims to be displayed and glorified through it. Why do you care about money? Because it God matters. And the way we use it displays his worth or not. Kevin Van Hooser writes, The most compelling reason I can give for learning to read culture is that the mission of the church demands it. We have to learn to think about the stuff of everyday life from a Christian perspective because the Christian mission demands it. What do I mean? As those tasks tasked with spreading Christ's kingdom and stewarding his creation, which we as the church are, we simply cannot make a dent if we are lazy when it comes to thinking about the stuff of everyday life. And if we don't think about it in a critical, thoughtful, mature, discerning way so that we can engage others on it, it makes us sound like we don't care about it and it doesn't matter that much. And so if it doesn't matter that much, God must just care about the spiritual, which is a false view of God. So we have to think just as carefully, just as discerningly, just as maturely about the stuff of everyday life because the world watches Christians and how we interact with creation and that tells them something about God. Leaving are wanting to be healthy consumer or sorry let me say this again wanting to be healthy thoughtful consumers of creation is vital for our wellness and witness as ambassadors of Christ on earth 
So if we are going to faithfully represent Christ as his people in his church, then we must think thoughtfully, healthy, and wisely about what it means to be a thoughtful, healthy, wise consumer of creation. So that leads us to our first topic this morning. That's set up for the series, The Why. And let's talk about food. Amen? Because that's something we're all going to do in about an hour. And uh, we, uh, I hope this sermon makes you hungry. So we all eat, right? We can't not eat. And that says something about God too, and we'll get to that later. Food is a necessary part of our everyday lives, and that means the question of how we consume it is hugely, hugely important. If we spend so much time doing this thing, shouldn't we take at least some time to consider how this activity does or does not edify our lives or whether it brings us closer to God and to others? In other words, we need to ask the question, is, am I presently consuming food in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, in the beginning, let's go back to Genesis 1, shall we? In the beginning, God created all things and pronounced them good. And among those things was the food he made and eating itself. It was part of God's very good creation in the beginning. In fact, the very first thing, if you remember, that God did after creating mankind was offer them a menu. Genesis 1.29, Behold, God says, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Genesis 1.29. very first thing that God does when he creates man is offer them a menu. Interesting enough, food also proved to be the enticement that led to the fall of man in the beginning of sin, wasn't it? Adam and Eve were tempted by the fruit and what it offered under the direction of Satan. As C.S. Lewis so poignantly put it, Eve, who thought it was beneath her dignity to bow to God, instead chose to worship a vegetable. The first and most destructive sin of humanity involved food and a piece of fruit at that. So I think that what what that teaches us up front is that something God created as good, like food, can lead us astray if we approach it the wrong way, right? If we try to get out of it something that God didn't put into it. God gave Adam and Eve the whole garden to enjoy, to eat from, except one tree. But they consumed that outlaw fruit at the temptation of the serpent because rather than worship God, they wanted to be God. So our interaction with God's good creation always goes astray when we seek to use it in a selfish way rather than as a worshipful act. And that's a huge foundational principle for this whole series. We approach the stuff of creation as a worshipful act, not as a selfish pursuit. And we will find this true of all the topics that we take up in this series. Everything goes awry. Marriage, family, sleep, leisure, money, work, food. When we seek it as an end in itself and not seek it as a channel through which we might worship and glorify God. Well, the next major food section that we see in the Bible is Genesis 9. God comes along and reminds Noah after his judgment in the flood. Genesis 9, 3 and 4. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Now, as the Old Testament begins to unfold, so he opens it up. In other words, he opens it up to the animal kingdom then. Not just the vegetable kingdom in the garden, the fruits and vegetables of the garden but opens it up to the animal kingdom. However, in the Old Testament, as it unfolds, there are various dietary laws that, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll read these over and over again, that come into existence as part of God's covenant with Israel. And the laws lay out these specific directives for how Israel's to interact with food, especially clean and unclean animals. And the purpose of all those laws under the Old Covenant and the people of Israel was to show them how they might honor that covenant, which Adam and Eve did not do. Okay, so it's God's putting clean, unclean. Well, why is that? Because he's God and he says so. And he's trying to get them to honor the covenant, 
to understand. You don't have to know why I said don't eat from the tree. Okay? I just want to see if you'll trust me, if you're going to honor me. And so he sets up these laws of clean and unclean animals to seek to, as a way to get them to honor the covenant, approach holiness, demonstrate their reverence for God, which they don't do again and again throughout the Old Testament. You see the people of Israel caving into idolatry, going their own way, not listening to God. So these dietary laws between clean and unclean also serve to reinforce the separation of Jews from Gentiles in the Old Testament, thereby defining Israel as a culturally and spiritually set-apart people for God. But in the New Covenant, as we come to the New Testament, we see that shift, as we've even seen in our exposition of Ephesians chapter 2, where these dietary laws are nullified and the Jew-Gentile cultural distinction is rendered obsolete. See Acts 10, where the white sheet comes down and there's all manner of clean and unclean animals. And what does God say? Rise, Peter, kill and eat, all of them. And Peter just freaks out because he's a Jew. And God says, don't you freak out. I've made it clean now. And then the whole early part of the New Testament, book of Galatians, book of Ephesians, book of Acts, they're wrestling. How do we figure this out? For so many years, God has said, don't eat this stuff. And now he says, it's wide open. Go for it. And so So often we see in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul confronts Peter to his face. It's an issue of food because they're wrestling with this. They're trying to understand why this new covenant and what the changes are and and why all these things are rendered obsolete. You can't read a letter of Paul and him not bring this up. I mean, he brings it up in Ephesians. He brings it up in Colossians. He brings it up, I don't think, in Philippians. Although, yes, he does. Now that I'm remembering, there's almost every letter of Paul, he's addressing this thing, food, at some level. Romans does it. And this whole change that's taken place between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So now, even though as New Covenant Christians, as those living under the Redeemer who has come, not bound by the Old Covenant Jewish dietary laws, with its do not and do not eat regulations, we should still retain the spirit of eating in a way that honors God. Right? So while we do away with the specifics, we don't do away with the spirit which is to approach food in such a way that we seek to honor God, reverence Him, and worship Him through it in humility. So it begs the question, doesn't it? How? Okay, you've given us the Old Testament, New Testament kind of theology of food. What's that mean for my life? And so what I want to do for the rest of this sermon is practically interact with food in a way that brings glory to God. And I want to give us three ways in this sermon and support those textually from three different passages of Scripture. All right? So how do we practically eat food to the glory of God? Here's the first one. Food reminds us of the goodness of God, and so we should eat thankfully. Food reminds us of the goodness of God, and so we should eat thankfully. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5. We're jumping in kind of mid-sentence here. God created... Actually, let's start back with verse 1 so we can get the whole context. Verse 1, 1 Timothy 4, 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. So here's these false teachers coming into the church that are ascetic. They are ascetic. They believe in withdrawing from things. Don't marry. It pollutes you. Don't eat food. It pollutes you. And God's coming along and saying, oh, 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 Paul's coming along saying by the inspiration of the Spirit, false teacher, doctrine of demons. It is demonic to be ascetic in this way. It is a doctrine of demons. It is a doctrine of demons to say that the spiritual matters more than the physical. Inherently, God created us physical, and he aims to redeem a physical creation and put us in a resurrection body. To pit those two things against each other is wrong, Paul says. It's a doctrine of demons. He says, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. 
by those who believe and know the truth. That is, by Christians. Verse 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. He's talking about food and sex here. Food and marriage specifically, but specifically as, as part of sex, or part of marriage, sex. So food is God's idea, right? God created it to be received with thanksgiving. It's taste, it's nutritional value, it's properties, all of that God created. It's, part, it's food for his children. But it's not automatically honoring to God. Now, there's a certain sense in which God's creative activity glorifies him, whether or not creation acknowledges it or not. However, that's not the point here. The point is, is that the way we interact with food, whether we receive it with thanksgiving or not, is the way that God will be honored through it. That's why he says we must sanctify it by the word of God in prayer. That is being informed by what scripture teaches about it, responding to God in an appropriate way, which is prayer, of thanksgiving to him for his created gifts, right? That's how we interact with creation. Thankfully, we receive created goods that God created, thankfully, as gifts from him, which remind us of his great goodness. And that's why it's a doctrine of demons, not believe that. Because what has the demon been about from the very beginning? What has Satan been about? Undermine the goodness of God. That's satanic at its core. God is not good to you. God is not lavish towards you. God is stingy. God's a miser. How many people in our culture believe that? The Christian God is oppressive. You know why they believe that? Because they're believing a doctrine of demons. That's why Satan has won. He has convinced them that the God of the Bible is not a God to be trusted, but a killjoy. Paul will have none of that, and we will not either as his people. We will have none of that vision of God. Our God is good. Our God is lavish. Our God is generous. Our God is bountiful. He pours out blessing upon blessing every single day, moment by moment of our lives. And we will receive it with thanksgiving because he is good. And we will not preach a doctrine of demons by our life by either our asceticism or our indulgence with unthankfulness. So food is not ultimate. It's not the final good. You have to do something in order to experience it as part of the final good, and that's receive it with thanksgiving. I mean, just think of how much of our food reflects God's goodness. I mean... God didn't just create one kind of food for us. He created vastly different kinds of food. He didn't just create one kind of fruit. He created many kinds of fruit. Apples and oranges and grapes and peaches and strawberries and lemons and limes and bananas and variations within those. An orange is not a tangerine. But it's a kind of orange. And then he didn't just make vegetable. Here's a vegetable. Eat this. No, he gave us carrots and onions and peas and cabbage and squash and zucchini and tomatoes, maybe a vegetable. Celery and spinach and broccoli and beans and all kinds of lettuce. And he didn't just make meats, right? Here's beef. It's what's for dinner. No, he gave us chicken, seafood, and not just grains, but wheat and barley and oats and corn. And then Then just the creativity of mixing and matching all that and supplementing herbs and spices for the especially gifted. And then you get these wonderful meals. And that's part of God's image in people, that we can take the stuff, the raw materials of his creation, and build meals out of it and make things that satisfy taste buds and appetites. And don't even get me started on desserts up here. I mean, for real. Can I get an amen? That's what I'm talking about when you bring up desserts in church. So, I mean, just all the varieties of God's goodness, all the textures, all the flavors. I mean, that should elicit thanksgiving from us. 
Now, we live in such a way, we live in abundance. We live surrounded by it. We don't even think about it. The prayer request, give us this day our daily bread, makes no sense to us. Of course we're going to have it, right? We have grocery stores and banks and jobs. I mean, but that's all the more reason for a sermon like this, isn't it? We're not living in a famine. If I was living, we were living in a famine, nobody had to preach to you about how to be thankful for food right? But we live in a land in a period of abundance, and therefore our obligation to be thankful to God is even more so, not less so. And so we need to wake up. We need to remind ourselves, wait, I didn't earn this. I didn't deserve this. This is a token of God's goodness. I mean, we, wouldn't it just be amazing? I'm not recommending you do this, okay? Probably be weird. Don't do this. But walking into Kroger or something and just looking at those vegetables right to the left if you're going to Paris and just say, God is amazing. Look at that. Now, that'd be weird, and you'd probably get, you know, called or something, and, sir, you can't be bursting out in the middle of the grocery store like that. But, I mean, that should be our heart, right? As we're going around, we're, like, picking it up. What in, God, what in the world, you know? It's, I mean, a major biblical theme of food is thanksgiving for God's provision. I mean, this is the Old Testament, and the reason why all the seven feasts happen annually they were feasts of thanksgiving. In the Jewish calendar, there was this cycle of these seven annual feasts that showed up that served as a public communal thanksgiving to God for his provision. And our holiday thanksgiving has picked up and been influenced by those biblical feasts. And I'm glad our culture still acknowledges that. So certainly, this means that our meals ought to be marked by gratefulness to God. I mean, we see Jesus doing it, right? We see Jesus praying before the Last Supper, acknowledging God's provision. We see him before he feeds the 5,000, acknowledging God's provision, lifts up his eyes to heaven and prays and thanks God for it. And so we should do the same. You know, in our family, we don't always do it because we're sinners and we forget just like everybody else, but we've tried to make it a habit to pray together at meals. In such a, and we have a, a prayer that we, re, that we recite together as a family, and it goes like this. How faithful, Father, is your care. Again, as always, food is there. Again, you have set us before a meal we pray will mean much more than single persons filled with food. Let there be, Lord, a loving mood. And as you make our bodies new, come now and feed our oneness too. Now, I didn't write that. John Piper wrote that. But we memorized it together as a family and and. and, and and use it as a prayer of thanksgiving to God. You can do it in however your own way. But the point is, you you should mark your meals by thankfulness. So chief among these annual feasts, getting back to the main point here, chief among these annual feasts for Israel was Passover, right? It was the special annual feast that that commemorated God's deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. And importantly, the Old Testament Passover anticipates... And takes on new meaning in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament rather, as it's reflected heavily in the Lord's Supper, which is the new feast of remembrance that we will remember tonight as God's redeemed people, a remembrance of a greater deliverance than just from Egypt, from our sin, and a greater Passover lamb, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. So the Lord's Supper then is a family meal. I mean, think about this. At the center of his church... The Lord Jesus put a meal as far as at the heart of the life of his church, celebrated by old and young believers as a commemoration of God's saving action in Christ. That Lord's Supper is given to us to remember Christ's death for us. It's also given to us to renew our covenant relationship with God, signified in our baptism. And the Lord's Supper also points forward you remember the essence of our salvation being fulfilled in the book of Revelation is sitting down at a supper with Jesus, the great marriage supper of the Lamb? Revelation 3.20 reminds us that Jesus promised to come in and have table fellowship with those who overcome by faith. To the church at Ephesus, Jesus promised in the book of Revelation that those who overcome have a right to eat from the tree of life. To the church at Pergamum, he promised to give the hidden manna I mean, all these are symbols of our eternal feeding on Christ that believers are going to enjoy and that God gives us as a foretaste in the Lord's Supper. So let me say a word about those of, those of us 
who struggle with this discipline, I think, of coming to the Lord's Supper, of recognizing it as part of the life of our church. May I ask you why some of you do not attend? Now, there are always legitimate reasons, all right? There's sickness, which we would encourage you not to attend for, okay? All right, we don't want you bringing sickness in. Um, but there, then there are other things as well. There are other reasons to be hindered from, from fellowship that are legitimate and real. And I don't, wanna, I don't want to, uh, to uh, uh, malign those in any way. But for those who can attend, making excuses not to attend, then can I just ask you why? Is something more important? Than commemorating the death of Jesus and renewing your covenant with him and invigorating your future hope. If you repeatedly dismiss yourself from the obligation to remember Christ by taking the supper, may I say to you as a pastor who wants to be faithful to you, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you sense your need for him? That's the, that's the deeper question. Because the Lord's Supper, people show up for the Lord's Supper ideally because... I'm broken. I need Christ. That's the posture that we bring to the Lord's Supper. Not, I've done great this week spiritually, so I'm going to show up at the Lord's Supper. Well, that's a false gospel. No, I'm a broken sinner who needs Jesus Christ, and I need him to meet with me through his people. I need to hear the word of God from them. I need to pray with them. I need to hear good things that God is doing in their lives from them. I need to hear burdens that I can bear from them. I need to enter into the brokenness of our church family and our collective need for Christ. And I need to encourage someone else. See, it's not just about showing up to obey a command. That's part of it. But it's showing up because my life and my heart belongs to Jesus and his church. That's fundamental to who I am. That's what a Christian is. You can't profess to be a Christian and knowingly, willingly, repeatedly, decidedly reject to take the Lord's Supper. Because to do that is to say, Jesus, you're not my Lord. Jesus said this in John chapter 6, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, I know that that's predominantly spiritual. It's a faith thing. But it has application to the Lord's Supper. All right? We don't get Jesus by taking the Lord's Supper. Jesus isn't reconciled to us by taking the Lord's Supper. But we show that he is our Savior, that we belong to him, that we cling to him, that we hold to him in all our brokenness by taking the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper expresses what John 6 says we do by faith, which is take eat the blood of the Son of Man, drink it, or eat his flesh, drink his blood. He says, if you don't do that, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. That's huge. That's huge, because the Lord's Supper is given to us as an expression of that reality. Okay? as a way in which we can practically and tangibly feed on the symbolic flesh and blood of Christ. So may I encourage you to attend our Lord's Supper gathering tonight. Some of you may have never attended, and you will not be shamed. All right? But if you're a baptized believer in Christ, a member of this church, or in pursuit of membership, and you're not living in sin that you're unwilling to repent of or forsake, we encourage you to be here with us. So some of you may be wondering a practical question. Well, can we not take the Lord's Supper sometimes here together when we have the highest percentage of our church gathered on Sunday morning? And we would say yes, and we're planning to do that. Not exclusively, but definitely. We're sensitive to that concern. That's why beginning this August... We are, going, we are looking at going to begin taking the Lord's Supper together on the fifth Sunday morning together, while also maintaining our evening gatherings on months that do not have a fifth Sunday. So this basically means that for now, 
We're not looking at taking the Lord's Supper anymore, but we are looking at taking it slightly differently. Four times in the morning, eight times in the evening. We'll still take it roughly 12 times a year. And this will afford us both the... And I I would argue this is great because it affords us two different angles at the Lord's Supper. Not just one, right? It affords us a breadth angle, which is all the church taking it together rather quickly as a shortened, intense moment of reflection, repentance, belief, faith at at the close of a larger service. And it affords us the breadth, the depth of a Sunday evening where we can have longer sharing, a lingering time. And both have advantages. And you can argue the helpful benefits of both sides. And we're saying at this season in the life of our church, praise God, we don't have to choose. We may have to choose at some point, but we don't have to choose right now. And so let's, let's seek to do that together. And therefore, all of us who are believers in Christ, walking faithfully with Him, can take the Lord's Supper at two different kind of levels, dimensions, perspectives. All right, quickly, going to move on to the last two points. That was the longest point. I should have told you up front. But we, food is a, is a reminder of the goodness of God, so we eat it thankfully. All right, we're going to do that at lunch today and then at the Lord's Supper tonight. Number two, food reminds us of our dependence on God, and so we should eat it humbly. Food reminds us of our dependence on God, so we should eat it humbly. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, please. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And let's look at verses 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. All things are lawful for me, Paul says. Or actually, the Corinthians would say. That's Paul quoting the Corinthians, most likely. But not all things are helpful, Paul says. But all things are lawful for me, the Corinthians would fire back. But I will not be enslaved by anything, Paul says. But they say, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul responds, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So what's Paul doing here in these verses? He's just trying to remind the Corinthians that eating food is not ultimate. I mean, they're arguing here, among other things, I mean, I can do anything I want. I'm a Christian. All things are lawful for me. And he says, wait. Yeah, all things are lawful, but you better be careful not to be enslaved by anything. You better be careful that Jesus Christ is your master, not your belly, not your appetites. That's why he uses the language of sexual immorality and food. Both of them are driven by our appetites. And so he says, you need to recognize that God is to be your master. God is your provider, not you. Not, you don't get to do what you want to do. God is, or the Lord is, the Lord, the body is for the Lord, Paul says, and the Lord is for the body. So God's in favor of food. He's pro-body. He's pro-sex. He's pro-marriage, pro-all that, pro-physical, but he's pro-lordship too, which means those appetites are to be brought under the lordship of Christ and governed by his lordship and not our appetites. So Paul says, don't be mastered by anything, especially food. Food's for the stomach. Stomach's for food. It's just food. I mean, that's their argument. It's just food. I mean, what are you, what are you getting bit out of shape about? And Paul says, but don't be mastered by anything. Just like Genesis 3, right? They were mastered by that. And so Paul knows the devil's schemes. He knows what, how Satan operates in our appetites. I mean, he knows what Esau did, right? In the Old Testament, coming in, selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. He knows how our appetites can drive us to make radical and, and terrible decisions. Philippians 3 talks about the false teacher's God being their belly. Remember that phrase? Their God is their belly. It just means their God's their appetites. Their God's drip. Who, who, who's their God? Their God is their desires. That's their God. But not so with the Christian. All right? Not so with the Christian. God is our God not anything he's given us, not any gift. Now, this can show up in lots of different ways, right? It can show up, this God, this idol of food can show up in lots of different ways. Sometimes it can show up by eating to excess, right? It's one of the most widespread and dangerous ways that we abuse food, especially in America. We eat a lot of food. 
and coupled with our poor dietary choices and sedentary lifestyle, our overeating has led to an epidemic of obesity in our country. Now, the Bible's word for that is gluttony, and it's a sin. It, it's a manifestation of, now, I'm not talking about people who have legitimate, you know, there's, there's other things going on in weight gain than food. I get that, all right? And this is just one angle. I'm going to come to the other angle, too right, of how we, how our pride leads us to treat food in wrong ways. But gluttony is a real issue, especially, I mean, I remember one uh, prominent Baptist preacher said, it's like the unspoken sin in the Baptist church. You know, preach against adultery all day, but don't preach against the pastor's belly, you know. So, in how we eat and how we interact with food, the real problem is not the, the not the evidence. It's the symptom. It's the or it's the it's the roots underneath what's giving rise to that craving. So the real problem with gluttony is not the food itself or our physical need for it, but in how we go about our eating and in the thought or lack of thought that we give to it. Ultimately, overeating is an expression of pride. Our misplaced longing and inordinate desire for food is what we do when we aren't satisfied elsewhere. Gluttony is very much a self-centered activity of seeking in food what we can only find in God. You know, and I'm guilty of this as well. I'm guilty of using food as a means of escapism, right? I mean, give some comfort. And now, now don't get me wrong. There is a place for that. There is a place for 9 o'clock at night getting a big old bowl of ice cream, all right? I'm not condemning that. There's a place for that, right? And enjoying a dessert and, and, and relishing that to the glory of God. I'm not, being, it's not talking about being stingy here. The default, the default day after day after day where you find yourself growing less prayerless, less dependent on the word, less dependent on the church, and more dependent on briars or whatever it might be, you know. It can be anything. It doesn't have to necessarily be sweets. I mean, and our culture has called us on this, slapped our hand, right, and said, hey, let's just call these what they are. They're comfort foods. They give us comfort. It's the habitual thing that I'm talking about, not the occasional enjoyment, uh, partaking. It's the habitual. And, where, and you have to be really, my wife and I were just talking about this yesterday, we have to be really honest with ourselves and really willing to check that with other people and have them speak into our lives on that, don't we? Because a lot of times we don't know. I mean, are, are, are we going too far with this? Are we not? I mean, I mean, what's going on here? So it's like we have to really get, get underneath those longings and desires, and that's hard work, and that requires the church community and the Spirit and the, and the Word of God and fellowship and all that because we are notorious for being deceivers of ourselves and justifying all kinds of things. So that's, that's a particular sin when it comes to too much food. There can also be another, another equally driven sin motivated by idolatry, and that's the lack of food. I mean, we see this with, you know, uh, particular expressions of anorexia and bulimia. And I'm just saying, if you're here, and you sh- I know that's a real problem. If you struggle with that, you will not be shamed. That is a just as much of a manifestation of brokenness as gluttony. And is we all have brokenness when it comes to food. All of us have manifestations of ways we treat it in inappropriate ways. So it's not like, oh, anorexia and bulimia, that's the bad thing. That's really awful. No, that's a more direct external manifestation of idolatry. But all that stuff's present in every heart of every person. So as Christians, we meet that redemptively. We want to help people who struggle in those ways, not shame them. Ultimately, those sorts of things can be driven by approval. They want to be recognized by others. They want to be a certain shape or a certain frame, particularly ladies. And so they're driven by that because they're driven by believing a false gospel, namely that other people can give them what Jesus has already given them, which is approval. And so they're, they're motivated by, you know, I want this person to like me or this guy to like me or whatever. And so they've surrendered the lordship to Christ and given it to the lordship, of, given their, the lordship of their lives to a person, which is a terrible tyranny to live under. And then there's there's the other side, which is which is you know this sort of motivated by the the uber health and wellness people, 
right? And I'm not talking, we should all be interested in wellness, all be interested in nutrition, all be interested in that. But sometimes that stuff is used as a way to demean and shame other people. And that must not be, that's a manifestation of pride as well. Look, it's great to be able to control your appetites. It's another thing to be known for, as somebody who controls their appetite, right? Because then you're being driven by pride, not by wellness, not by the glory of God. You're being driven by, I want other people to notice how controlling of myself I am and how approval, not how approval, you know, oriented I am or not. So again, it's a hard issue, right? You can't tell it by looking at a person. Oh, that person, they're driven by control. Look at them. No, you can't tell that. You have to get inside, learn, understand each other. But it, but it can be there. I mean, pride can manifest itself in a number of ways. And let me just say that this is one of the reasons that the Bible commends fasting, right? It's to help us not get enslaved to food, either in terms of too much or too little, because the Bible doesn't encourage a perpetual, ongoing 40 days after 40 days of fasting, but neither does it say, don't ever fast at all. It says, when you fast, do it this way. Do it humbly. All right? So fasting is a spiritual discipline that most of us are all too unfamiliar with. It's not talked about a lot, but Jesus talked about it a whole lot. And one of the reasons he commended it to us is because he knows the addictive and idolatrous power of food in our lives. And so he commends it to us as a way of strengthening our desire for him and keeping his lordship top priority. That's why he's given it to us. So Matthew 6, 17, when you fast your head, or sorry, when you fast, not fast your head, that would look weird. When you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret, your father who is in secret, and your father who is in secret will reward you. It says notice, not when you fast. Or it says notice when you fast, not if you fast. So it's, the, it's given to us so that we might say to God and ourselves, I am not mastered by my delight in food. I am mastered by my delight in God, and I want to intensify that desire. And one way to intensify it is by abstaining from alternative pleasures so that without calling them evil at all, we're not calling it evil, food's not evil, but we're intensifying our desire for God just to say to ourselves and to him, you are better. You are my priority. It's the same thing we do with our sexual impulses before marriage. Right? We're supposed to steward those in such a way that we say to our spouse, our future spouse, and to ourselves, God is better. It's a form of fasting. It's a form of purposeful abstinence, in that case, from an illicit pleasure, if you're not married, not food's fine. You can eat before you're married. I would encourage you to do that. So we don't have people dropping dead in our church. So as you, but as you do that, you're, you're, you're abstaining. You're, you're saying, I, you know what I need more than food? God. That's what I need more than food. I need God. I love you, God. I love you more than food. I need you more than I need food. I want you more than I want food. You taste better to me spiritually than foods taste to me physically today. So food is given to remind us that we are dependent on something outside of us to sustain us, right? So the devil said to Jesus, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he said, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Our final nourishment is not material food, but spiritual food. We need the word of God more than we need food. And that's what Jesus is modeling for us in that temptation. I'm fasting right now. I need God. I want God. And so that's a humble posture toward food. It means there's a time for feasting and there's a time for fasting. And humility dictates both of those, right? Third point, very quickly. Food reminds us of our mission for God, so we should eat evangelistically. When Jesus Christ arrives on the scene of history in the New Testament Gospels, food and eating do not become less important in the biblical narrative. They become more important. Arguably, they become infinitely more important. The New Testament completes the sentence, the Son of Man came in three ways. He came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom of many. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And you know the third way? He came eating and drinking. The first two describe the purpose of Jesus. The last one describes his method. So Jesus comes into the earth to save the earth, to serve the earth. How does he do it? Eating with people. Eating with people. Jesus' evangelistic strategy is mealtime. That's his main evangelistic strategy. If you read the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either going from a meal, he's at a meal, or he's heading to a meal in every single instance. It's amazing. He, comes, he does it enough so that he gets accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Oh, yeah, Jesus, yeah, we know that guy. That's the guy that's always eating and drinking. Like, he's always at somebody's house. Good grief, why is that guy not 400 pounds? He was 30 and had a higher metabolism probably at that point. But, I mean, I mean, you just read the Gospel of Luke. I'm not going to share the examples. I don't, have it. I, don't have it. I don't have the time. But Jesus was a party animal, brothers and sisters, reverently speaking. His mission strategy was a long meal that stretched into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. And if Jesus' mission was built around table fellowship, well, what would we expect the New Testament church to follow in Acts? Well, we see it in Acts chapter 2, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread. I mean, they were together eating meals together. And if that's true of the believers in the kingdom of God in the first century and true of Jesus himself, then it ought to be true of our fellowship together today. We should be frequently eating with those who do not know Jesus. Eating for connection and community, you know where it has to start? In our families. It has to start there, which means we turn the TV off more and we gather around the table to interact with each other face-to-face. And it starts not just in our families and ends in our families, but it should spill out and spill over into the church and showing hospitality and slowing down and enjoying food and eating in community, which is one of the reasons we encourage our gospel community groups to eat together if possible, every time, because food serves fellowship. It does. Jesus believed it, and he practiced it, and we've experienced it. We know how good it is to gather with people around a good meal and share good conversation and leave refreshed. So I close with this. This is what Tim Chester says in his book, great book, A Meal with Jesus, which we've recommended before, and he sums up the significant role that meals play in the kingdom of God when he writes the following. He says, everything else, creation, redemption, and mission is for this, that we might eat together in the presence of God. God created the world so that we might eat with him. Think about that. The food we consume, the table around which we sit, and the companions gathered with us have as their end our communion with one another and with God. The Israelites were redeemed to eat with God on the mountain, and we're redeemed for the great messianic banquet that we anticipate when we eat together as a Christian community. We proclaim Christ in mission so that others might hear the invitation to join the feast. Creation, redemption, and mission all exist so that this meal can take place. What a, I mean, you could say the, the Bible is the story of God gathering a people to a meal. And so I, if, you're, if you are not a believer in Jesus here this morning, if you are not sure where you stand with Christ, can I invite you to this meal this morning? I'm going to invite you to a meal. Isaiah 53 says, He has borne our sins and carried, and borne, he's ca- carried our sins, borne our sorrows. By his stripes we have been healed. Talking about the death of Jesus for us. In his body he has bore our sin. For all those who will ever believe in him, he has borne their sin, taken their curse, their punishment, their wrath, that, they, that God owes them for their sin. It's been put on Christ. And then two chapters later, Isaiah erupts with an invitation to a meal. He says, come, all you who are weary. Well, Jesus said that. But come, come, everyone who is thirsty. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. He's inviting people to this great messianic salvation feast. And he's saying, come, take Jesus. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. 
He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. That is the greatest longings and desires that food illustrates. Those appetites, they'll be satisfied in me. I am the bread of life. I am the living water, Christ said. And the Bible concludes with this great invitation to come to this feast. So I invite you to come. If you have never come, come. Come to Christ in your seat right there. He's invited you to the banquet. He's commanded you to come to the banquet. Would you receive him? In conclusion, we must never forget that food is a sacred gift. It's a foretaste of a coming world, an invitation to joy and grace. It may be so easy for us, and it is so easy for me, to take food for granted, to cheapen it or scarf it down because I need to fill my stomach. But as we've seen, to eat food is to partake of something significant. How we eat, what we eat, why it matters, All these questions should inform our eating habits as we eat with every bite to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together in your word, which has reminded us again of just how central food is to your story. We thank you that in the beginning you created it very good. We are sorry for the ways in which sin has hijacked our appetites. We acknowledge that we all have ways in which we interact with food in ways that are inappropriate and sinful and we ask your forgiveness for that we thank you that we have forgiveness as we repent of those sins and you have promised that you will cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness we have an advocate in heaven jesus christ the righteous and therefore we plead the merits of his blood over our sin and thank you that in him and through him that we can now have a new relationship with food a a relationship to food that is rooted and oriented on worship and, and fellowship and mission. And we pray that this would be actualized in the life of our church more and more until the great wedding feast, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's respond to that in worship. Please stand.
leave you with this blessing, this benediction from James chapter 1, verse 17, that reminds us of the gift of food as well as every other good gift. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God's blessing on you.